all of the things that were coming up along the way, the fear of sleep deprivation, the fear of being in the woods at night, the fear of not knowing what to do as a pacer. I've never done this. Lisa's never done 100 miles. She didn't know what she needed. We did, this was all, it was two rookies in the middle of the night in the Tahoe wilderness. You know, it's been months of working on that mental game so that when I showed up to do this, all of that had already been cleared away. When we show up to a race, yes, we want to practice presence, but that's not where we want to begin to practice presence. The true state of presence from which we can live is going to come from that detachment of the identification of the mind. Because as long as we are identified, we have mind identification, body identification as who we are, it's, we are going to have a very, very, very difficult time of living in the present moment to any degree of sustainability in our life, which means for our entire life, we will never be 100% at our potential. Hey, you guys, welcome back to the Yogi Triathlete Podcast. I am Jess. I'm Beach. I am fresh off of the Tahoe Rim Trail 100 as a pacer for my friend Lisa. This body that I live in, this body that I call home, is extremely sleep deprived right now. But Beej and I had planned to record this podcast, particularly on the day that it's going to be launched, because we wanted to catch the experience that I just had. We wanted to catch it fresh. And I would say that we're doing just that. I'm feeling pretty raw. I'm absorbing the experience. And of course, can't help but um, put myself into the experience of, of what I just saw me as potentially somebody that's gonna going to do 100 someday. I think, you know, I think Mary not talked about that too. Like if you're interested in doing the Ultraman, go volunteer, go be someone's crew, like put yourself in that environment and feel it and see if it aligns with you. I think that's exactly what, what this experience has served you because, you know, we've tossed around the idea of that you've done the, the 25, the 50, 50 miler, like, and you would just assume that what's next is the hundred miler. And so putting yourself in the experience of what it, what it takes for someone who, especially with Lisa, who has, couldn't be any more real world. Like she's a mom of three. And Lisa's the, my friend oh, yeah, Lisa, who yeah. I, Lisa who is uh, my friend who I paced, yeah. helped pace um, to earn her first buckle. But with no coach, right? She's self, self-trained, but she has uh, guidance. She has peers that help her along, but she's a mom. She's figuring things out. She, she's putting in long, long miles and she's like the every, every person. She gives you no excuse because she shows up and she does that training and she has a really great mindset. We were talking on the trail. Like I actually can't remember when we met. We can't remember when we met, which is, which is interesting. But I do remember whenever that was, I was thinking, oh, I can, I can run with that girl because her mindset is very, she has an ability to kind of roll with things and I feel stay in that solution energy. And when I'm out on the trail and you're logging long miles, I don't particularly care to surround myself, you know, with low vibe or, or fear. Or, and a lot of that stuff is very, very common because the fact is that what we do breaks you down. 
And when you're broken down, we get to see what's what's underneath the surface. And so with Lisa, I really got to see that this weekend. And I got to see just the perseverance that this takes. It's it's a high, high level of perseverance. A hundred miles is a long way to go. It's sort of like the half Ironman. Like you can build up to all the races of, and the half Ironman would be the the top of that tier. And then you go to the double, you go to the full Ironman. And it's a completely different beast. Would you say that's the same thing with going up to like a, a 50K, 50 mile or even, and then you bump up to like a hundred miles? A hundred percent. So 50K, you're like, well, if I can do a marathon, I can do a 50K. Then you do a 50K and you're like, well, if I can do a 50K, I can do a 50 mile. And then you do the 50 mile and you're like, well, if I can do a 50 mile, I can do a hundred K. Cause you're talking about in- increments of less than 20 miles. But then you get 100K, which is 62-ish miles to 100 miles. That's a big-ass jump. There's a lot that goes down in that, in that chunk. Yeah, I, I would say I haven't, I'm en route to the 100K. There's no doubt in my mind that I can do that distance. There's no doubt in my mind I could do a 100-mile distance. There's no doubt there. I know I can do it. But it's like going from half Ironman to Ironman, it's not just double. It's so much more. And I think 50 mile to 100 mile, it's not just double. It's so much more. And the mindset, I would say, the training, obviously you have to do the training. Everybody does the training. But the mindset has to be strong, super strong as you progress in distance. And I I want to touch back on solution energy because you mentioned that. So especially in this type of racing, how critical is it for someone to be in solution energy? But first, what is solution energy to you? Solution energy is essentially shifting into a mind space that is not where the problem exists. So if you're in the problem and you're in that problem energy of, let's just say my foot hurts. Oh my God, my foot hurts. My foot hurts. Like, oh God, I should, I should have. So this is problem energy. I should have laid off last week. I shouldn't have trained. I, I did that big run. I shouldn't have done that. Um, oh my God, how am I going to, how am I going to feel in 15 miles? How am I ever going to finish this? My foot hurts so much right now. That's not solution energy, solution energy. You got to break that pattern. Like with any kind of change shifting, you got to, you got to interrupt the, the pattern. And so to get out of the problem energy, you've got to have that break. You've got to have the interruption. So whether you're doing the five, four, three, two, one Mel Robbins thing, whether you're just going to taking one full conscious breath, you get a little bit of a gap and then, okay, this is the situation that it is. Now, what can I do that is going to allow me to move forward? That is going to um, allow me to focus on something other than the problems because your, your solution is never gonna be in the problem. The problem and the solution are two totally different energies. So if you can see that all the symptoms of whatever that problem is, that's one category. Your answer isn't there. Your solution's not there. Your forward motion's not there. It's, it's, in, another, it's in another mindset. So you got to interrupt that pattern, break the cycle of negativity, essentially, because if you're in the problem, you're just, you're just cycling through negativity. And then moving into a place with, okay, here's the situation. How do I move forward? And then that opens up a big space where you can start to entertain all kinds of things that will allow you to keep moving forward. But if you're in the problem, 
that's not where you're going to find your solution. And did you experience this with Lisa at all in your 30 mile um, section that you had? Was it 10 hours? How long did it take you to do the 30 miles? Uh, 11 hours. I got to look at my watch. I haven't even plugged it into my, into my computer yet, but it was a little over 11 hours. It took us to, to do 30 miles and this was through the night. And when I picked her up at 50, she had not been eating well. She just, things weren't So settling. that's kind of the problem. Let's, let's yeah. So the problem was, up. the problem was Lisa, cause I'm sure she's going to listen to this problem was Lisa. You showed up at 50 or the opportunity, <laughs> let's say the opportunity, Lisa, <laughs> the opportunity for you was to get some fuel in but your she body. She showed up at 50. I would, I would, for the simple, for the simplicity of, of describing the situation, she showed up at 50 in a deficit and she was ready to walk away at 50. How many hours? So 50 miles back, give us hours. What do you think that was roughly for I her? I think she did about 14 hours, which was spot on. She was really good. She wanted to take the first 50 conservatively. And she's really good at that. She's very good at pacing herself. She's, this is one of the things I love about Lisa is that she's very good at being in that solution energy, not being in the ego of, well, you know, I'm fitter than that person. I should be going faster than them. Like she very much sticks to her own race. Now what's going on inside of her mind? I don't know. She's a human. So she's probably coming up against some egoic impulses. But what I see as somebody who trains with her is that she stays in that energy of, of moving forward. So what happened was she showed up at 50 and she wanted to be done. She wanted to be done. And what did she say? Like, what is it? I didn't know, I actually didn't know this. Like later on, as we were going through the night, she told me this because I, when she first came in, Sally, who is her other pacer, went and met her at the Stonehenge aid station, which is essentially the start and the finish, right? So here she is at the start and the finish, but she's right in the middle. So it's, you know, it's the, that fabulous thing that endurance, endurance races do many times is they make you pass through the finish, right? We see that at Ironman all the time. Like, yeah, you, you run by, it's like <laughs> to lap two or to finish. And sometimes if it's a long race like that, 14 hours in, your mind's kind of like, did I already finish? Or, or, did I or you immediately are like, I just want to be at the finish. I don't want to be going out on, on lap two. So she came in at 50 and Sally was there, who was her other pacer, like I said. And I guess she came in and Sally, also a, a Marine, so... Sally was a Marine. Lisa was a Marine. Lisa's husband's an active Marine, as people know. I was raised by a Marine. So this is pretty, pretty good girl power between the three of us. And Sally was like a drill sergeant. And uh, <laughs> she's, she's definitely like, didn't, she said, she said to me that um, Lisa said something, you know, about, or, or, or perhaps Sally picked it up that Lisa was kind of like, I'm done. And so I was like, nope, you're, you're like not even close. Jess is here. She's ready to go. She's going to carry like, she's, she's there for you. Like get some food in you and get the hell out of here. Get back on the trail. Like you're not quitting. It wasn't even an option. Like there was no drama around it. Sally just kind of put that to, she put the kibosh on that pretty quick. That's solution energy. Yeah. She, and, and Sally's got an incredible amount of experience. I, like any, every distance, you name it. She's been running since she was in high school and I believe she's in her fifties. She's pretty hardcore and very, very experienced at the hundred mile distance. So she was the perfect person to do the last 20 miles with Lisa because I just had to, um, 
you know, get her to Sally. And we knew that, I mean, Lisa knew this too, that Sally was going to, <laughs> Sally said to me, she was like, at one point she said she, she licked at Lisa and Lisa was like, it's so far. And I don't, I don't remember this the first time. Like when, where's the top? And, and Sally was like, if I have to like grab you by the pack and drag your ass down this trail, you are getting to the finish. Like you are not stopping. So she was, she was pretty hardcore, but yeah, apparently she came into 50 and was kind of like, I'm done. So she came to me and she was like, I'm not eating well. And I could feel that there was like an emotional, for lack of a better word, like an emotional weakness. Like she's like, I'm, I'm not, I'm not eating well. And I was like, that's fine. It's fine. It's fine. We'll just, we'll eat. It's fine. Like we're, we, we knew we were going into the evening. We knew it was going to be slow. And I just had to adjust because Sally was saying like through the night, like, it's okay if she's kind of like not eating so much cause you'll be moving slower and it'll be cooler. But once you get to like, you know, 68 to 70, like get her starting to fuel back up again. But essentially what happened was it was the opposite. She didn't come in fueled. So I had, and she wasn't feeling good. Like nothing was, was feeling good for her. So she got, we got her, she takes the, the mama chias, like the pouches. So she had one of those and we started out and she was not in a good place. She did not feel good, but I just, I let her ride that out, you know? And I just said, Hey, listen, you, you feel like crap right now, but you're going to get to the other side of it. You're going to feel like crap again, but you're like, this is going to pass. So by the time we got to our first aid station at, at Hobart, uh, she was ready to eat a little bit. We got some Coke in her and um, noodles. Noodles was what she wanted. And uh, so th- we would get some noodle soup, but we would- boiling. Is it, in, is it warm? Is it hot? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. They have like full on setups. And um, so we would, I would go up and, well, I can kind of tell you about like how I got her through the aid stations and things like that. But essentially the noodles were good and that was giving her salt and that was giving her carbs and things like that. But she came in essentially to 50 in a deficit. So my job was to not only get her to mile 80, but get her out of the deficit and to mile 80 with, with as much padding as possible to those cutoffs. Because I knew that those last 20 miles were going to be tough because the 30 that I was with her at were tough. You mean by terrain wise or just yeah, the, I mean, the, condition, the condition she was in or a combination of the condition she was in, the, the, the being in the dark, the terrain? It was more of like crossing over to that point where she was going further than she had ever gone. And, you know, we, we got to a point where she, it, she got past the 100K point. And that was the first furthest that she had ever gone. And then we were like, she was like, okay, I've officially been up for 24 hours. And then we were like, okay, you've officially been moving for 24 hours. So we were hitting all of these milestones. And she, I would say it wasn't until really the last eight miles where the fatigue hit her heavy. And it was also because she was still trying to catch up. She was eating consistently, but it wasn't a lot of calories. And then I kind of had to put the hammer down on her a little bit to get some more food in her. You need fuel. Like you're moving the body. And, and I, just from watching a lot of the videos on YouTube from, from these race reports, these guys are fueling. Like they're, they're putting calories in and they're fueling quite often. And you can see it. They're going into the aid station. They're filling up all their waters again. They're grabbing snacks and stuff from the back of their pack. So even at the elite level, they're putting in some fuel quite often. Yeah. And when we got her pack at the 50 mile mark, like Sally said to me, she's like, she's like full, like she's full. She should have come in there empty, right? She should have, whatever. She came in perfectly. 
So I knew, like, I just knew. So here's the, so that was the symptom. That was the quote unquote problem that she hadn't been eating very well for the first 50. And then it was like, okay, what's the solution? Get, start getting food in her, start getting electrolytes in her. We started having her take salt tabs and, um, getting as much as we could in her. She got over the fact that she wasn't feeling good. Then it was more of like, it was me up against the fatigue and her starting to fade a little bit, like cognitively and realizing that I couldn't leave it up to her to make decisions on when she was going to eat when she wasn't. So we would come into the aid stations and I would just sit her in the chair, get her pack, give it to a volunteer, tell them what we needed. I'd get her drop bag, give her the drop bag and immediately get her food so that she was in the chair with food. And I had, it was 10 minutes. So I would give her 10 minutes at, um, at these aid stations throughout the night where she could sit for 10 minutes and it, the first thing we did was get her food. And then, and then after she was all set and kind of eating, I would go and take care of myself because as a pacer, you also need to take care of yourself because you, you can't be the one that screws it up. You can't be the one right. that says, Oh my God, I'm not eating well. And you need the calories. So we work with this with our athletes. If your mind starts to wander in a race, like you're starting to to go off into the distance, you're low on calories. You're not focused. Your, your, your brain needs fuel, right? So you need those calories. Same thing here. So for you to be aware for Lisa, you needed to fuel yourself. Yeah. It's interesting. It's like, you know, you, you do a race and it's, it's you, it's you and it's your race and you're responsible when you pace, it's you and you're responsible, but it's somebody else. And you're really, you're responsible for watching them. Because the whole idea behind pacing and why races allow it is for safety. It's for safety of fatigued runners on the trail at night. And I gave her a trail name called Mumble. I was like, your trail name is Mumbles because I didn't know what she was saying. She was having a really hard time enunciating. She would like tell me these stories. And I'm like, I have no idea what she's saying. So I knew that the, the brain, like the brain wasn't getting what it needed. And so I would listen to her, I would watch her, and that was giving me so much information. And so you could, you could potentially say, well, how do you know? What do you mean you're watching her and you know? And that's just going into this, I just knew that in the present moment, I would know exactly what to do. I would know exactly what to do. I think this is a key point for athletes as, as you're explaining this the ability to be low in calories, the mind wandering, the mind going by the finish line to go out on that second lap, the default of the mind, the comfort of the mind is going to be like, I'm already behind in calories. I'm not feeling good. The finish line is right here. Maybe I'll just, you know, chalk it up. This is not my day. I'm just going to like bag it. Things aren't working well. And you can easily that's the problem that's the problem but you can you see the mind can easily just give into that it's just it's so easy the, the mind wants comfort right it's going to seek comfort where it's at at that point i just described is not comfortable it's in the unknown so that's why this is why it's so important to be in that solution energy and kick yourself out of that that mindset so you don't continually go down that way and either you do the five, four, three, two, one, or you have a pacer or somebody that can be there for support that, that moves you towards the, the goal that you want. Because in that moment, Lisa's, I'm just, you know, putting my, my opinion in here. I don't know what she was actually experiencing at that point, but 
in that moment, your, your body and mind are seeking comfort, but deep, deep down, and if you can tap into that deep, deep down, you want to finish the race. This is what you're there for. Yeah, there was, I think there was no doubt in her. She, she can see it. She can see like, I think, I think she came into 50 wanting to bag it, but knowing, but knowing that she wasn't going to, because there was no way in hell that we weren't going to, that we were going to let her bag it because the thing that she, one of the first things she said to us was everything is fine. I'm fine. So we knew it was just mental. So we just had to get her on the trail as soon as possible and get her out of that aid station, get her away from her husband and her kids, you know, comfort. Yeah. All the comfort, you know, the cars right there, like everything. And, um, so we just had to get, get her out of there, get her, um, some food in her. And like, she was like, should I change my tank? I was like, yep. Just like what I wanted to do is make her feel as fresh as she possibly could going into the second 50. So she's like, I don't know if I should. So you see this a lot, like there's decision fatigue because she's tired. She's already got 50 miles under her belt. I was like, yeah, change your tank top. hundred percent. Like just do that. It's going to make you feel so great. Okay, good. Got that on. Let's go. Because you're at the aid station waiting for Lisa, probably for an hour or so. Maybe longer? No, not even. It was probably like our, the timing and the good. flow was just on on point. Did you see anybody come in? Did you see any runners come in and, and were having the decision fatigue or, and actually decided not to continue on? Could you see any of this happening? Yes. And I was talking to Lisa's husband, Josh, uh, who's a really cool dude. And he was like, this is really interesting. He's like, because he had been there for hours. But he was like, there are people who have been here for 45 minutes, close to an hour. And I feel like the 50 mile aid station is critical because it's the refresh, right? So it's like, get what you need. And if you're going to change, like, yes, like maybe have a little bit of time. But if you start going over too much time, the body is going to not want to move again. So I feel like it's really critical to get what you need at that 50, perhaps give yourself a little bit more room, but, but like, it's a very fine line. And there's no time limit for the 50 mile aid station, right? I mean, there's the cutoff. <laughs> no, dude, you should see some of the shit well, we were seeing at the aid station. I was just thinking about people like, oh, there was carnage. I was thinking about Utah's toughest. And I got to that aid station after the bike and where most guys are broken down. They were like crying. And that's when I called you, right? And I was broken down. But there was a time limit. I had to be out of that aid station by a certain time. But I could see myself wanting to just be there and, and debate in my mind, should I go? Should I not go? Maybe I just need one more sip of cola. Maybe I need to just put water. Like, I can see that mindset. So if I didn't have that time frame where they said, you have five minutes, you got to get out of here by the time you came in that sort of pushed me out. But in this experience at the 50 mile mark, it's just the time cutoff, right? So they could be there for an hour or two or three if they got there early. Oh yeah. A hundred percent. Like we saw this one guy, uh, that we actually had it out on the 50 with him and within, I don't know, a quarter of a mile, we were all off course. And so then we, we turned around and we came back this, thank God this guy on a mountain bike was like, you guys are totally going the wrong way. So we had it back out and he had an energy about him, this gentleman that we were on the trail with, and we weren't on for very long. But I said to Lisa, I'm like, just let's just let this guy go because he was complaining about the course markings. And I was like, let's just let this guy go. Like, we don't need to be in his energy. And we saw him at the first aid station and he was like, 
slumped over in a chair with a blanket over his head. And it was like, like he looked dead. He looked dead. And then like three hours later in the middle of the night, and I knew, cause he had an Iron Man tattoo on his leg. So I remembered him and he went cruising past us and he was all like in solution energy. Like he was all like having a good time. And we were like, dude, you were dead at Hobart. And he's like, I'm alive. And he took off and then we never saw him again. So I'm assuming he finished, but it's just, it, it really, you can, yeah, you can go to this aid station, stay as long as you want. We knew one guy that was at an aid station for two hours and he ended up finishing in front of Lisa. So you can, you can be at these aid stations for as long as you want, but if you're feeling fine, which for Lisa, like when I would do assessments with her, I would ask, like, I would ask her how she's doing. And I would listen. It was more about listening to her tone, listening to like how matter of fact she was about what she was telling me that was giving, it was more of like what was between the words that was giving me the information more so than what she was telling me. And so the, the point was the whole time she was fine. So there was no reason that she needed to stay at those eight stations longer than 10 minutes. Yeah. Keep it moving. So lucky she had you there. You got to get, get that, get in and out quickly. And, and, and the decision fatigue, I think is a huge thing. I think a lot of people come, come up upon that without even knowing that they're in decision fatigue. You know, we hear it, but I don't know if you hear it yourself. And I think having a pacer for a hundred miles is, is actually really smart so that you've got that person who's cognitively fresh and they can take your words and then make the decisions that are going to be best for you at that point. Cause it doesn't matter if you're, you know, an 18 mile, I mean an 18 hour hundred miler or a 35 hour hundred miler, like you're going to get fatigued and your brain and your ability to make decisions is going to be compromised. So at that point, so the 30 miles, 11 hours, 11 or so hours that you were with her, did you get a sense from her that she was looking, that she was staying in the moment or she was looking ahead? She was looking ahead. So how it, am it I was, ever going to get to... Yeah, we had, and it was more 100. like coming out of fatigue and like, like then there was emotion, like, how am I going to do? And you, I mean, obviously, you know, my answer to that, I was like, right. And I would, she was just very quiet a lot of the time. And I was, um, I would either, I was going back and forth of being in front of her and being behind her. And there was times when I was behind her and I was like, she need, she's got more than this and she needs to be giving more than this right now. And I would say things like, you know, right here, right now, um, right where you are, no further than that. Uh, there was one time where we were coming into Diamond Peak and I was just seeing this like level of perseverance. I knew that this was a, she was in a tough zone for like probably eight miles and I was pushing, I was really pushing her because I wanted to get her to the 80 mile mark with as much padding as possible because the climb out of Diamond Peak is like insane. I, get, I didn't do it, but I heard it was like up to upwards of like a 40% grade and the sun was out. It was the morning, so it was going to be hot. And uh, we, came, we came out of the woods and we were almost to the aid station. She was like, how am I going to do this climb? I'm never going to be able to do this climb. How am I going to finish this? And I just was like, all that is bullshit. It's bullshit. 
Like that's just the mind. It's not who you are. You just right here, right now, one step in front of the other, you're going to do this. Like that's bullshit. Do not buy into that. Do not buy into any of that. So, and she's like crying and I'm crying because I'm seeing this like unbelievable amount of strength from this woman, like just incredible. And here she is like emotional and I'm just right in her face going like, that's bullshit. So in those situations as endurance athletes, why is it so challenging to do the simplest, the simplest, smallest thing, which is just take that next step? And I know sort of what the answer is, is because the we talked about it, the mind is going into the future, right? It wants to know that it's going to make it up. It's going to want to know that it's going to hit the timeline. It's going to want to know that it can do this. So why, what is the essence of it? Why can't, why can't we all just be present? So here it comes back to presence. We've been big on the presence lately. Wow. So the presence, why can't we just come back to the footstep in this? Why is the moment, why is this moment and present moment so challenging for all of us as endurance athletes? Because we identify ourselves with the mind. We have mind, we have mind identification. So as long as we identify ourselves as the mind and the body, we're going to have a lifelong battle with being present. And the mind is always going to have a leg up because we think that those thoughts are who we are. We think, oh, my mind, this is the way my mind works. Oh, my mind. Oh, my anxiety. Oh, my fear of this, my this. So we own all this stuff. We reach out. We take all this stuff that's not helpful and we make it ours and we make it a part of our identity. So it boils down to detachment. I am not the body. I am not the mind. I am not the thoughts. And that was an embodiment that allowed me to up-level on so many, in so many different areas leading into this race. And when I say leading into this race, as opposed to during the experience of this race, it was because all of the things that were coming up along the way the fear of sleep deprivation, the fear of being in the woods at night, the fear of not knowing what to do as a pacer. I've never done this. Lisa's never done a hundred miles. She didn't know what she needed. We did. This was all, it was two rookies in the middle of the night in the Tahoe wilderness. You know, it's been months of working on that mental game so that when I showed up to do this, all of that had already been cleared away. When we show up to a race, yes, we want to practice presence, but that's not where we want to begin to practice presence. The true state of presence from which we can live is going to come from that detachment of the identification of the mind. Because as long as we are identified, we have mind identification, body identification as who we are, it's, we are going to have a very, very, very difficult time of living in the present moment to any degree of sustainability in our life, which means for our entire life, we will never be 100% at our potential. That's pretty deep. That's exactly what I wanted to get from you. I wanted to pull this out because it's the very, it's the pivotal moment. It's the pivotal moment as athletes where we want to go to the pool 
let's just say we want to go to the pool. We have a set that we're supposed to do. We have expectations of what the times would be. We start the set. We're not hitting the times. We bag it because we're not doing it. We're not achieving what we were supposed to achieve. And then we, and then we move, walk away from it. <laughs> when the very essence of it is to show up, do the workout, detach from whatever the times are and move forward. So there's no attachment to that one workout. Now we're going to go to the, whatever's next in our day with no attachment. And with the athlete, what the majority of athletes will say is, well, how can I get better? How can I know I'm getting better if I'm walking away from the very instance of, a, of some performance data that's going to tell me I'm doing okay? The very thing that you just said there, how do I know I'm doing better, shows attachment. Because if I'm not doing better, then I don't want to do this anymore. That's attachment to... Um, to the fruits of your work. So I had posted um, this, oh God, I just opened right up to it. Perfect. From the Bhagavad Gita, I actually posted this on my Instagram page. I love this so much. And I think every athlete should really listen to this and, um, and let it soak in, perhaps even write it down. You could probably Google this part of it. It's from chapter six of the Bhagavad Gita, which is the practice of meditation. And it's, um, this is Krishna talking to Arjuna, and Arjuna is the one who's in the battle of the mind. And he says, it is not those who lack energy or refrain from action, but those who work without expectation of reward who attain the goal of meditation. Then he goes on to say, those who cannot renounce attachment to the results of their work are far from the path. And that's exactly what I was saying. As long as we identify ourselves as the mind, the body, and the thoughts, we are always going to be far from the path of our evolution, like our spiritual evolution, I should say. It, um, it goes on to say, um, where is it? Well, if I, if I can find it, I'll read it. This is so good because as, as these races and experiences are put forth and presented to us, there are opportunities for us to explore using these techniques, I guess you could say, these spiritual learnings or just these overall challenges of noticing what our thoughts are and belief systems are. So these races are experiences for us to go out and challenge that. So you, if we backtrack to why you actually had hesitation to becoming a pacer at a race at night, like if we backtrack to this back in, and I put it in our Instagram post back in uh, the years that we were at the 2000s, we were in Boulder and you didn't run trails. Why didn't you tell everyone why you didn't run trails? Because I wasn't meditating. <laughs> but what else? <laughs> Obviously. So I know that the source now is because I wasn't meditating because the trails called me and I knew about trail running and I knew about ultra runners at that point, but I was scared. I was so scared. scared. I was scared of mountain lions. 100%. I was scared of mountain lions. I was scared of being ripped apart by a mountain lion. I mean, that's, that's it. Like if sure I could come up with a couple other reasons, but that was it hundred percent. So that tells me that I've got mountain lion karma from in my DNA from some other situation in my life, because I can tell you that I actually can feel the terror and the trauma of that happening. So it must've happened at some point. And because anything we feel like those fears and things like that, those are deep, deep 
wounds, like deep grooves on our soul. So if we look at it from the spiritual standpoint, there's some scars, but also it's this, all this karma and everything is in our DNA and it's, it's from our ancestors. You know, big thing about our generation is that we're coming from parents whose parents were in the great depression. So a big part of our generation is healing financial karma, not living in a state of lack anymore. So I, I know now that that was something I needed to get to the other side of, but I didn't wait until being there this weekend to get to the other side of it. I got to the other side right, of it. Back to your point about doing the, the prep work, doing the work before you even get to the race. Yeah, it's like, it's like prehabbing, right? It's like prehabbing um, before you go into a surgery, get yourself as strong as possible before you go into that surgery so you can come out the other side even stronger. That I wasn't mussing up my experience this weekend by trying to get to the other side of fear. I was already on the other side of fear. So the thing was, is that just like how we say that race day celebration day, this was like this mental and spiritual celebration experience because being out there, like, I just want to get out there again in the middle of the night. Like who does, who wants me to pace them in the middle of the night? Like I'm your girl. I absolutely loved it. And I know we've got a question on that. Um, but essentially, yeah, I was really, really fearful. And we lived in Boulder for 10 years. And the fear was not just about the trails. I had a lot of fear in my life. And then I started meditating and starting to understand that those fears were not who I was, that those thoughts were not who I was, that um, the mind was not who I was, and that the body is not who I, who I am. And that I am something else. I am that energy that created the mountain lion. <laughs> That's who I am. And then... I always aspire to be like the story of Daniel in the lion's den, you know, so he's Daniel's in the lion's den and the lions have can't attack him because he's peace. He's peace. Now, if he had fear in him, if he had violence in him, then they would have attacked him. So I learned that a long time ago that if I allow the layers of fear and judgment and jealousy, all these, all these really low vibrational things to fall away, that what's left is just peace. And if I'm peace, then I'm at peace no matter what. And a lion who's angry and hungry is not going to go after peace because that peace is the peace of who they truly are too. So, I was too scared to get on the trails in Boulder. And I was very, I really knew about that. And then um, moved to Newport. And there was a part of me that I moved to Newport, like was like kind of wiped the sweat off my brow. Like, oh, good. Now I don't have to deal with that fear. But that was also a part of my life that I've talked about before, where every time I got in the car, I thought I was going to be killed. So the fear just translates. It doesn't matter. You can't avoid it. If you see the fear down an aisle in the supermarket, you can't go down the next aisle and think that you're not going to have to face that fear. And, um, and so over the years, healing the fear, healing the fear, healing the fear by communing with who I truly am every day. And then those layers just fall away. So when I found out that Lisa was, got into the race, I had an immediate hit that I, that I wanted to support her, that I was supposed, that I needed to support her. And it was all these little mini steps along the way, sending the text, Hey, do you need a pacer? Right. Like that, that took getting to the other side. How did you have any, did you debate it at all, whether you should send the text or not, or wait till Lisa contacts you or, cause I remember you might've said once to me, like, I wish Lisa would ask me to, to pace her. Yeah. So that I don't have to stand up. Right. I don't have to stand up and do it. Did you like, have any of that? Like right? debating? Cause it's always easier to be a victim. Right. 
But, and that would have been like, oh, well, she asked me to do it, so I've got to do it. But I took the initiative. And then there was, yes. So, so what's there, the worst that could happen? She says no. So what? Well, the worst at that point was that she was going to say yes. Well, I'm just saying for the normal people, people out there that are like, you know, they, they, would, they would get the... Um, they'd get the no and they'd feel like they're not worthy enough. Oh yeah. That wasn't, I wasn't even thinking about that, but so there was all these little steps along the way. And this is why present moment awareness is so important because you because re- so you've probably heard this before. Like every, every moment is for you and there's learning in every moment and there's not one moment that's more important than another. So I had the no, it came in meditation that I was to be in service of her. Now there's nothing I can do to take that away. Like I knew that that was, I needed, I was supposed to do this. So now I could have not acted on it, but I acted on it because I'm, 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 uh, I'm in tune with the fact that that, that intuitive voice is, that's who's running my life. And so, yeah, so send, sending the text and then in between sending the text and her getting back to me was like, well, maybe she will say no. Like, that would be cool. Then, then maybe you're not, you don't need to be in service of her and you don't need to do this right now. And so I just watched all that. It doesn't mean that those thoughts don't come up. I just watch them. I just watch them. And then of course she came right back like, oh my God, thank you so much. That would be amazing. And then I was like, okay. So then there's all these little steps, right? So then I knew that there was a 30 mile section. There's a 20 mile section. And then a little bit of runner unworthiness, thinking like, well, maybe she'll just have me do the 20 because I'm not that great of a runner, right? Again, little thoughts coming in. And she said, you know, do you have any preference, 30 or 20? And I wasn't going to let the mind decide that. So I said, you feel into it and you let us, you let us know because she had us kind of on a whole crew email. So she had decided I was going to do the 30 which was going to be through the night. And I was like, that is so perfect. So it was about noticing any kind of sensation that came up along the way and not, in, not indulging it, being like, okay, there it is. Awesome. Another opportunity to rid myself of that consciousness. Because that's all you have to do, right? If you don't want a mosquito biting you, rid yourself of mosquito consciousness and that mosquito will never bite you. I did not get one mosquito bite this entire, that entire experience. And people were getting eaten alive because guess what? They were like, these mosquitoes, I'm getting eaten alive. I just got bit again. And in my head, I was like, I have rid myself of mosquito consciousness and I didn't get bit and I didn't have bug spray on. And at one point I actually had to sit on the side of the trail because I had to tend to an opportunity that was happening in my foot. And there was mosquitoes swarming me and I watched them. They like landed on me and I didn't swat them away. I just said, I have no mosquito consciousness and they flew away and I never got bit. So it was, it was these little steps along the way, paying attention on purpose so that I can see like, oh yeah, there's another little, a little, um, spark of fear. Okay, good. Heal that. Heal that. How? Practice being calm. Realize that those thoughts are not true. That there's nothing to fear. And as we always say, what was the worst that was going to happen? I was going to die out there. That's, that's the ultimate detachment. So what separates you from everybody else? Because you're having the same thoughts that everybody else has, right? Yeah, everybody else has fear, doubt, um, angry, anger, anxiety, 
um, unworthiness. Everybody has the same thing, but what you've done is you've basically, and I like to use this analogy, you just rooted your feet, your feet in the sand and the beach. Like you're just like rooting them down and you're standing up to those thoughts of anxiety, fear, doubt, unworthiness. You're standing up to them and just noticing them, not indulging in them. Well, I know on a, I have embodied on a cellular level that they are not me. Right. But, but whereas the normal person would be like, that is who I am. And they actually like, will vocally say that to us. We've heard like, I, I you know, I'm one who just gets fearful of like, they've embra- embraced and embodied whatever that word is and the meaning of that word. And that has become them. But what you've done is you've noticed that she's fear. Fear has come up. You've noticed it. Yeah. You've had feelings of fear. You've embraced that before, but what you're doing now is you're noticing it and choosing not to have that define who you are. You're noticing it and remaining calm and moving through it. I remember one time when I was talking about Ironman Lake Placid to meditator Bob and I said, Oh, I just, I just love the race. And I just, I'm so drawn to the mountains. And, you know, I think I was going for my second time there. And I said, you know, I just, Oh God, that's just like draws me back. And how romantic you want to make that, right? Like, I love the mountains. Lake Placid calls me back. I love that course. I love what a monster the bike is. I love how hard that course is. And I remember Bob just said to me, he said, well, wherever you should, you should continue to follow that because where whatever calls you, you have karma to work out. And that was the year where there was the crazy storms and I was on the descent and I um, just was like, okay with dying. <laughs> Like I was okay with dying because if I, uh, it was one of those situations where I was either going to get down to Keene safely or I was going to crash cause I didn't have, I didn't have brakes and I was freezing. My feet were coming unclipped. It was, it was crazy. And I was completely peaceful. I was well into my practice at that point, but I always think about that. So obviously the Tahoe thing, it was calling me. I had, I had karma to work out. So you know, if you're listening to this and you're like, well, I don't believe in karma. Um, that's fine. You, you can say that all you want. Um, it's the law of cause and effect. That's, that's all, that's all I'm talking about. It's just the law of cause and effect. So I knew that I had some things to work out in Tahoe and what it was, was the whole experience leading up to Tahoe. And then actually when I showed up to Tahoe, as I shared with you, I actually didn't feel that great for those 30 miles. My, I had some interesting things showing up, but what anyway. the very reason why you had to go there? I was just, it, it, there's no, there's, it, it's not dramatic anymore. It's really nice. And that doesn't mean that I don't feel joy. And that doesn't mean that my life is boring. It's just that there's, there's, the mind wants everything to be dramatic. And um, what I realized is that there's this really expansive life on the other side of drama. And I'd much rather hang out there. Yeah, Cause you could have come back from, you could have come back from the race being like, there's no way ever I'm ever going to run on this course again, ever because of the way that you felt, right? You could have gotten caught up in the way that your body felt during those 30 miles, right? And disregarded the beauty of Tahoe and the community and the race organization and the opportunity to, to be outdoors in one of the most beautiful places in the world. And that's what you chose instead versus driving into this fearful, um, injury, I wouldn't say injury, but your, the experience you had where you had a lot of sensation, right? And you can dwell on that, which is just going to create more sensation for the next experience that you have. 
but I just look at it as, okay, cool. Everything that's coming up is the whole reason why I'm here. Opportunity. There's, well, there's no mistakes. Like, so a little, um, I was having pain in my right, like on the lateral side of my Achilles the entire time. I have never felt anything there. And I was like, oh, this is perfect because whatever it is that I'm here to work out, it's, that's the energy that's showing up right now. Now, if I didn't ever come here to Tahoe, like in this moment, then whatever that unique energy and that perfect alignment was that I'm supposed to work out right now, it, it, I wouldn't have been able to have that opportunity to work it out. So I came out of this experience more purified than going into it because now, I can't remember ever showing up. We'll call it a race. Like we'll, we'll say that I kind of treated this as a race. I don't, I can't recall showing up to a race except for the time when I took a typhoid vaccine two days before um, doing a half Ironman where I haven't felt good. I mean, I always feel amazing. I always like have reported that this is past, this is historical information, right? That the things, the little niggles, they never show up on race day. And this weekend, every niggle showed up and then new things. And it was like my entire body was just being like poked and prodded by the universe the whole night. And it was fine. It was completely not dramatic. It just, again, I'm not the body. So when, when you embody that on a cellular level, it makes navigating these things so much easier. Yeah, you have a choice. Yeah. Back to the choices. All right. Should we dive into Amy's yeah, question about this? Question, yeah. Hey, I have a question for you though, as I pull this up, like what was your experience about seeing me move into this and, uh, and move through it and all of that? What were you watching? Uh, I guess you could call it flow. Just seeing you notice the challenges or notice the opportunities and then just moving calmly to the next thing. And you would have, you would have, I would, I'm not going to say doubts. You would have questions. Moments of intensity. Yeah. And you would, which we all do. I mean, how many conversations have you and I had here where we're like, one thing will come up, we have the conversation and then all of a sudden it just disappears because we've, we're not attached to it. Like it, here it is. This is the problem or, or thing that's coming up and then it's quickly gone. And so when you, the, even training all leading up through it, when you've had, you are having challenges. Like, I just don't feel like, like, I just need to get to the pool today. You know, running wasn't an option. Yeah. This stuff started to show up like about a month ago and like for three weeks I wasn't feeling good. And then I remember the week before I went to Tahoe, I put in my notes, like I'm back. And that was really short lived. And again, this is all energetic alignment. So everything that's showing up in my body is just, it's just energy and it was aligned with this experience. And so I had an, a, an opportunity to rid myself of that energy or expand that energy and then have to go work it out later. So I definitely worked out a lot of stuff leading into it. But during 4th of July, when my brother and sister were here and, um, you know, hanging out with them and everything and, you know, just I love them dearly. But listening to, you know, just this um, some of it like mindless chatter uh, and I don't mean that in an insulting way. I mean, let, let's face it, people, a lot of our conversations are just mindless chatter, right? Like talking about the past and talking about other people and things like that. And in the midst of it, I'm getting course updates about snow fields and five foot drifts. And I'm thinking, oh my God, I'm going to be navigating this stuff in the middle of the night. But it was funny because I would notice that 
but then the truest part of me was just receiving all the information. It's just, it's just information. It was just, and you know what? I went through those snowfields. They were fine. They were so minimal. And they were actually, they served the runners really well because during the day they were packing their buffs with snow because it got hot during the day. So yeah, so I was getting all this information along the way and it was really cool just to watch that it just was coming in as information. And at first, when you first start doing this work, it's going to come in as fear and it's going to come in as all those things that are the very reason why you're walking this path. But then as you continue to walk the path and the layers fall away, you just start to realize that everything is information and there's not good information or bad information or scary information or helpful information. It's just information. And then once it goes through the filter of the mind, that's where the meaning comes in. And when that information comes in and, and we put the brakes on, that's where most people just stop. Right. So it's continually going. So you see all you saw all these signs and you saw these potential obstacles, but you just kept moving forward. And that's I don't think that can be overstated is you you must keep moving. You must. It's a must to keep moving forward no matter what's happening. So the the filter this is so great. I love that. The filter that's going on in your mind, if you're thinking about and reinforcing the thoughts of these walls are there and, and I'm supposed to stop and I need to turn around because it's getting uncomfortable versus this wall, this obstacle, this wall is there. I need to find a way to get around it and to get over it because there's going to be another wall. And guess what? There's going to be another wall and you're going to continue to go until there's finally no more walls or if there's ever such a thing, but it's that filter system. So if your filter is not a high-end filter, let's just say, not a top quality filter, then you're constantly going to stop and put the brakes on. And you're going to wonder why, why is it that it's been 15 years since I've said I wanted to do this, but I have not done it yet. And you can pinpoint that to your filter system. If you want to change it, change it. Interrupt the process. Somehow interrupt the process. And what I noticed from you, because now it's just automatic for you. It's just, here's the obstacle. Here's the wall. I'm just going to walk around it. And then another wall comes up and you're like, well, this time I'm going to go right through it. And then another wall will come up and be like, well, I think I'm going to do two jumps over it and find the other side. Like there's always a way over and you just navigate it calmly and with perspective of something that aligns with who you are internally. Like you've done the work to align yourself. So no matter what is out there challenging, you can still make it through. Because at the very essence, it's who you, it's aligned with you. When you're aligned, when you're in alignment, there's nothing that can dis that can pull your, your drive or, or path to that final destination. Yeah. And the, in the wall, I love the, the wall visual because I feel like my walls now are just so see-through. I'm like, ah, oh, it's all transparent walls. They're just transparent. And you know, everything, everything, everything we take in through the senses, the smelling, the touching, the seeing, the hearing, everything that we take in through the senses goes through the filter of our mind. The filter of our mind is every experience we have ever had in this life and other lives. So it's like, if we are taking these thoughts as truth, we are living through the viewfinder of 
all of our past experiences and there's nothing new there. So what I love is the unknown, right? Go. What are you going to say? say? Because it's the, it's the, it's an opportunity. The unknown is actually opportunity. The, uh, yeah. So when a thought comes in, when I look out at the ocean and I say, oh, the ocean's beautiful, it seems like it's, I mean, it, it, an instantaneous, that observation is going through this filter of the mind, which holds every experience I have ever had in this lifetime and other lifetimes. The only place that that doesn't exist is when we're present. Because when we're present, we're just in experience. It's important to know too just like the blood uses the heart as its organ, right? To, to pump the ego uses the mind. The mind is the, is the, the organ for the ego. So you're putting it through this filter and it's this filter that the ego uses and the ego is, is all about keeping us safe and small. So anyway, um, that's another reason why presence is so important because Presence is what's going to allow us to move into the unknown without all the dramatics of the mind and without the big trailer of our past following behind us. And one of the things that came in very clear to me was that we have the known, right? The known and then the unknown and the mind and the ego love the known, but it's just the known. You're you're just looking at what is known, even science, science is like, it's just the known. Like I love science because it helps me as a, as a practitioner of meditation and and teaching it. It helps me to, um, assist people in, in buying in to their investment of meditation. But when, if we really are to look at science, it's just the known, which is almost limiting. It's a hundred percent limiting, but it makes the mind feel good. So there's the known and the unknown and the unknown is what the mind doesn't like all that uncertainty. Right. And then, then what happens is we start thinking about the unknown and we're thinking about the unknown through the filter of our mind. And we're projecting all of our past fears and, and everything onto this future experience, which is unknown. And what I was, was realizing and, and observing through, the, through observing my own human condition and the way that the ego works was that we want to just jump to the other side of the unknown. Like, oh, I just want to get to the other side of this presentation I'm doing at work because I've never done it before and I'm doing it in front of the board of directors and I'm so nervous. I just want to get to the other side. But what happens is we're missing this very rich experience between the known and the unknown. And I love that. And I found myself the week leading up to Tahoe, like really slowing down. Cause I was like, I love this part because I am right. I am right before the, the unknown becomes the known. And once it becomes the known, it's safe. It's not that exciting anymore. The unknown is so exciting. And I just didn't want to slow down that process And that has everything to do with just being present. So the Wednesday before leaving for Tahoe, I was just in the Wednesday. I wasn't on the mountaintop yet because I knew that that precious time was, was closing in. And now it's known. It's like, like I said, anybody, like anybody want me to pace them? Like I'll pace you, right? Like I'll I'll go back into the dark anytime. Like I love it because it's known now. 
So we miss this really rich time in our life between the known and the unknown. And when I say rich, you know, life is a very rich itinerary and that, and that richness includes everything, intensity of all the different fields. And you say a lot wishing for another now, like wishing, like wishing yeah, it's a bummer fast way to forward live. into the mm-hmm. future when you can just soak up exactly where you are right now. Like having this conversation with you, with our dog, with his head under the bed somehow. God, um, it looks like he's been decapitated. Where's his head? It's... Oh my it's God. just oh, there it is. loving this experience right now, being right here right now, not the the stuff that we need to do later on today, the stuff that happened last night, the lack of sleep. It's just right now we're having this conversation. And, and um, without the paying attention to the present moment and um, without wishing for another now, without wishing to be on the other side of the unknown, if I, if I hadn't done that, I would have missed all of that preparation that allowed me to show up fearless. And I was fearless a month prior. Like I had already gotten to the other side of it. You know, it'd be really great if we got Lisa's perspective on, on having her pacers. Oh yeah, that'd be cool. All right, let's, let's, uh, we said we were going to do this question. So let's jump into that. All right. So I used to run in the early morning, uh, dark in Georgia, but never on a trail. What did it feel like? So what did running on a trail at night feel like? Uh, was it like being suspended in the universe? Did you just have to trust your footing? I mean, I know you use a headlight, but you become this floating firefly. What was it like? I love the way that she put this. Was it like being suspended in the universe? And I, when I read that, I just remembered being on this section after you leave. So if whoever's from, if you're familiar with the Tahoe course, then you know what I'm going to be talking about. You leave Hobart aid station and you're heading to Tunnel Creek and you're, this is the first time you hit the ridgeline. So like when you leave Hobart, we put on our, we put on our Houdini jackets, which by the way is the Patagonia Houdini jacket, best jacket ever made in the world. What makes it so good? It is feather light. It's like super lightweight and it keeps you so warm. I have no idea what they've done with this thing. It's not Gore-Tex. It's just a windbreaker. It's, it's, you know, water, re- um, resistance, not waterproof, but it's just the best thing. And it's so lightweight and you don't even realize you have it on. And then you can just kind of pack it up and throw it in, in one of your stuff pockets. But we put on our jackets and we headed up to the ridge line. And Lisa was like, oh, I'm so sorry. You can't see the view in Tahoe's right there. And we're up on this, we're up on this ridge. And I turned around and I saw this, like, it was this red. It was like this, I was like, what is that? And I could see, because the, the, um, the night was really starting to become itself. And I, you could start to see the outline of, of the peaks. And I, I was like, what is that? And I thought it was bright red. And I was like, oh my God, I think that's the moon. So we stopped. And this is one thing Sally kept telling me. She's like, you get up on those ridgelines. You, sh- you shut your lamp off. Just shut your lamp off and take it all in. She's like, make time for that. That's so important. I mean, and this is a woman that's like, she was like, beware of the chair, no more than 10 minutes. Like she was like, get a keeper moving, like boom, 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 boom. And this was some one thing she was so adamant about was like, stop, stop, turn your lamp off and just take it in. 
So I'm looking and Lisa's behind me. I was like, oh my God, I think that's the moon. And we stopped and we turned our headlamps off and we're on this ridge line and the breeze is coming through and I can't see anything, but I know Lake Tahoe is to my right. And I felt like a speck. In that moment, I felt how huge the earth is. I felt how huge the universe is. And I felt how tiny I was. But at the same part, at the same time, that that expanse was me. It was pretty epic. And you just, I felt like I could have taken off the side of that ridge and flown. Wow. I don't know what to say. It just, was, was one I of the most all just peaceful moments. Captivated, yeah, by your uh, ability to recall such detail and, and presence in that experience in the middle of the night, like to feel that. It was, it was amazing. And the time was going by so fast. Like, and I even had a thought, you know, so we talked about wishing, like wishing always like kind of get to the other side of something. There was a part of me that was like, no, 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 slow it down, slow it down, slow it down. And that's still the mind too, right? Like I want more and more, more, more. And, um, but what you're soaking in, in a moment is, uh, is plenty and just stay in that moment and you'll never need more and you'll never wish for less. Uh, but that moment was like, I can, I can, um, I can feel the breeze right now. And it was like this, there were these flowers that were like these white flowers. And it was like, they were, it was like they were glowing. It was just the whole world came alive in a way I've never seen it before. And I felt my relationship to the earth and the truth of that, I'm just, I'm just a guest. Amazing. All right. All right. And then follow up on that question. Did you have just, did you have to just trust your footing? I mean, I know you use a headlamp, but you become this floating firefly. What was it like? So yeah, what was your footing like at night? Because we didn't do much uh, night running in the training. So I've done a little bit of night running over the last couple, or, or I should say early morning running before the sun rises. And I remember the first time I went out with um, Izzy from Ultra Buds and they're all kind of like, you know, you kind of show up to these things and you're like, everybody else is like, seems calm. And I'm like, holy shit, I've never run in the dark. And like, what's that going to be like? And I remember we were at Lake Hodges and um, I was running and I was just kind of like, oh my God, like, please let me stay upright because the depth perception was like you would, it was almost like, you know, when you're going up a stair and you miss a step or you like think the step is sooner than it. it so that was basically how that whole experience was. It was kind of, it was really messy. And then leading into this race, I knew that I needed to up level my headlamp. So it, I mean, basically I didn't have to, I mean, I'm always trusting my footing, but this headlamp took all that depth perception and all the, um, quote unquote difficulty of night running completely out of the equation. And you ran actually with me under the guidance of that light. And as you know, like it was totally fine. Like we, we could, um, Lisa and I leading into this, like we had lots of conversations about lumens and our, our, uh, intention was to light up the night. We were going to light up the night. And so she got this 800 lumen, um, Kogala, K-O-G-A-L-L-A. It's a waist 
light. I saw a couple other people out there. And then I got the Petzl Now Plus. That thing rocks. I mean, I had that on my head for 11 hours. I had worn it for like a half an hour on that run that you and I did. And it just, um, there was, there was no problem. So, so basically you get yourself a kick-ass headlamp and you're good to go. The thing with running with someone that has a headlamp and you don't, when they look away, (laughs) the light is soon gone and you're in the dark. So that's actually why a waist belt would actually be better is because your waist is always looking forward, even though you can look left to right, especially if, you know, there's beautiful scenes like in Tahoe. But when you, when you turn your head, when we were running at Batacritos the other night and you turned your head, I couldn't see anything Yeah, because I had this like little ditzy like headlamp, which would just uh, allow me to see the fingers in front of my face. Yeah. This, uh, I was on a training run on July 4th, so I still hadn't figured out my headlamp thing. I hadn't, wasn't spending too much time. I knew I would get the answer when I needed it. And I was running with this guy who I'd never met before. And I asked him, I knew he had done uh, the San Diego 100. So obviously he had a headlamp. And I said, hey, what are you using for a headlamp? And the guy was just like, hold on. He like pulls it out of his pack. Like we're in the middle of the day. He's like, I don't go anywhere without this thing. It's amazing. It's the Petzl now, blah, blah, blah. Get yourself the extra battery. Just do it. You, like he, and it was, I just knew what he was telling me was what I needed to do. I didn't research. I didn't, you know, whatever. I read some reviews on the Petzl and every, every review was just like, yeah, it's amazing. It's the, it's our favorite. It's a top light and blah, blah, blah. So, um, we, so she has the waist belt on and we're, we're running down a uh, red house loop and this guy comes up and he's like, is that a construction light? <laughs> it was just so bright. I was like, is this overkill? Like the two of us, but it wasn't, it was perfect. And it just took, it took everything, everything was off the table. It was like running in the daytime. Um, the funny thing about running at night is that you really don't think about, I really wasn't thinking about anything except for what I was seeing, right? I wasn't, you feel really small. And then as first light started to come and the, and the light starts to come up and you're like, kind of need your headlamp, but you kind of don't need your headlamp, but you can see how you're this you're in this huge wilderness and you start to like, now all of a sudden you're looking around. You're like, what was that? What was that? Who's over there? Oh my God, look at those boulders. That's like mountain lion country, you know? And you're just kind of looking around. You're like, wow, at night, you just don't think about it. I didn't think about it. Like it was just kind of, we are just cruising. And yeah, you hear things, but um, we, had a, we had a bear bell with us. Um, but we we saw some super fresh bear scat and, um, but bears are vegetarians. And really the only thing we had to, um, be, you know, on the lookout for was if we got in between, um, mama and her cubs, uh, and then the mountain lion situation, they've got mountain lions there, of course, but you know, we're talking and making noise and we're actually like, there was times where it was just her and I, and I remember like, I was like, God, there's just no one around us. You're just in the middle of nowhere. And then there was times where there, we were like in packs of six, you know, you could see people up above, you could see people behind you and everything. So, um, yeah, you know, always, I'm always trusting my footing, but, um, the headlamp was amazing. All right. Last question. How does one train for a race that takes you all throughout the night? And as a pacer starting to that time of the day, what was coming up for you um, in prep for this? And also, I think, just briefly touch upon the nutrition, because it was a, 
a, a little twist on it because it wasn't your normal 6 a.m. or 7 a.m. raise. It was actually 9, 9 p.m. or 10 p.m. whenever you started. So what was the, the twist on that? Well, I think you and I were really kind of just winging it, right? Like it's the unknown. I don't know how to, I, I, I don't know what the perfect nutrition is leading up to a race that I'm starting at eight o'clock at night. So we basically took what we would normally do pre-race. I cut out the fiber and we just kind of backed it up, pretending that 8 a.m. was 8 p.m., right? Well, that was kind of our plan going into it. And I brought my food with me. So I had everything I needed in the hotel. But then what hit me was like around 5 o'clock, we had planned that I was going to have the pre-race meal of the applesauce and everything. But what hit me in that moment was, wait a minute. Usually I've got, you know, seven or eight hours where I'm not eating because I'm sleeping. But I had been eating. I've been, I was, had pancakes in the morning. Um, I was eating pretzels and fig newt. So I was loading myself, even though I was weaning off, I was still loading myself all day. So when five o'clock came and I made that applesauce thing, I think I called you from the hotel and I was like, I had maybe five bites of it. I don't want it. Like, I, I don't want it. I'm too full. And so you're going into this with food in your belly. So it was just, it was, um, we were figuring it out and I was okay with figuring it out because what's the worst that's going to happen? I'm going to feel like crap. So, so what? Okay. So that's the problem. You put that over there and you stay in the solution, which is I'm fine right now. Um, so what did happen was I will tell you that the first 13 miles, I didn't feel, I didn't actually feel good. I had this really weird, I've never felt this before. It was like, it was like from my low belly all the way up to like my heart. It just felt like there was this rod that was creating a lot of pressure through my digestive tract. And, um, I was like, like I said, like there's just stuff that was showing up, which was obviously perfect alignment for what I was supposed to get to the other side of. So thank God I did all that prep, all that, that karmic healing leading up to it because I had a handful of stuff during the race. And if Lisa's leading, listening to this, she's going to be like, oh my God, I had no idea. And because she's such a love, she's probably going to feel bad. So don't feel bad, Lisa. When you asked me how I was doing and I said I was fabulous, I was fabulous. Um, and it just, I was like, so the problem was I was feeling this, like almost like this really long kind of horrible cramp up the center of my body. So that was the problem, right? The, the solution energy was, oh, this is amazing because whatever this is, as long as I don't feed it, like it's going to fade away. It's going to be fine. And, or, and, and it's also keeping my posture on point because it really was requiring me to stand up very straight. So it was keeping my posture really well. And I was grateful for it because I knew that it was some kind of energy that I could get to the other side of. And it was me learning about what happens when you start a race at eight o'clock at night on that particular night. Now that doesn't mean that every time I do a race at eight o'clock at night, that's how it's going to feel. And then I remember looking at my watch, it was like 12.86 miles. I looked at my watch because all of a sudden I felt better. And I looked at my watch and I was like, okay, almost 13 miles I've been feeling like crap. And it was gone. And then after that, I was totally fine. So I was totally fine the whole time. But to answer this question, like for us, it was kind of an unknown. And I think that I would, I'll look back on this for the next time I do something like this. And 
maybe back out the food, have more of a afternoon of fasting, and then be prepared to take in the pre-race meal. So if I was going to look back, I wouldn't have been resting in the bed, eating pretzels and stuff all day. I would probably have had a huge breakfast and then fasted and then had the big applesauce situation. I think that probably would work well next time. And then as far as pacing um, and starting for that, I love this question, what was coming up for you? One thing that has been deeply rooted in my life is this fear of being tired. I mean, I can tell you that when I was in high school, I remember being in a full on like hyperventilation panic attack if it was after nine o'clock and I hadn't slept yet. I don't know. Again, don't know. Don't really need to know why. I have had a lot of panic about not having rest. So at some point I was massively sleep deprived and tortured or something and um, came into this life with this really fear around sleep. And I've said it on the podcast before, like I guard my guard my sleep, you know, with my life. This gave me a chance to get to the other side of that because it was like, oh my God, I'm going to be so tired. What if I fall asleep on my feet? I'm not going to be able to be there for her. And I was like, okay, all of those things are untrue. And the only thing I'm going to know is what's known in that moment. And I know that I've got everything I need to, to, um, to navigate that. So along the way, I would recognize the fear of being sleep deprived and when am I going to get sleep and should I nap before? And I would just notice those thoughts and not entertain them. And I interrupted my sleep patterns by going out for a couple of night runs and kind of just saying, okay, body, like we're going to do this and we're just going to run at eight o'clock at night and it's going to be fine. And the thing was, is like, I didn't feel like I needed to do a lot of that because it was really no big deal. So I feel like I healed that part of me and you, I, right. So I'm not the body, so I don't need sleep. So there was like this tether that I still had of identification with the body. Now the body needs sleep. The body that I'm living in right now needs rest. The body that I live in right now is very sleep deprived, but I'm not the body. So I got a really incredible chance to take that deeper leading up to this And the fact is, is that I felt really good all night. And I even yesterday came back to the hotel, took a shower, slept for an hour and went back out and went to the finish line and everything. And then didn't get home until one this morning, but I was fine. Like in prior years that would have panicked me not having the sleep. So I don't know what that's about. That might sound silly to people, but that has been a really, really big thing in my life is to get to the other side of this sleep that I feel like I need and, or that the body needs. Or attached to. Yeah, attached attached to to it. Like just panic about not getting eight hours. And all that does is, is create fatigue. So yeah, I interrupted the pattern a couple nights, went out for some night runs and, uh, it was interesting because it felt like a, you know how when you're tapering, you're like, oh my God, I'm like a caged lion. Like I'm ready to go. Well, that day, Saturday, was like the longest day of my life. I was like, oh my God, like I'm ready to go. I'm ready to go. And just allowing that energy to stay inside, not expend it, just let it build. And when I showed up at eight o'clock, you know, 7.30 or so, I met her around eight. I think we left mile 50 at eight. Um, I was so ready to go. And I never felt tired. I never thought about sleep. 
I, there was, there was no problem whatsoever. It was, um, yeah, it was awesome. So we didn't do a lot of that at all. I don't. But also don't let the mind get entertained by it. You know, it's just, just navigate it as you would as everything else in, in the moment. Right. I mean, you got to do your due diligence. You're fit and strong and healthy and hydrated and, and focused and mindfully there. So yeah, you will show up and you will be successful. It's just the mind that wants to get involved and say, we need, we need to overcomplicate this a little bit to make sure that you're successful. Right. Right. And remember that's basing everything on the known. Right. So past experience or what other people are posting on social media, or you can get into the blogs about ultra running and just cloud the mind, but just keep the one thing you can always trust is yourself and deep inside. And if right. you've tapped into that and understand that, then it doesn't matter where you are. You know, I've, I've, mentioned this before. I don't know if I've done it on a podcast, but you could insert me in anywhere. You can put me in Detroit. You could put me in the middle of Missouri, in the Ozarks. You could put me anywhere. As long as I'm with, like, I'm confident in myself, I'm, I'm going to be okay. I'm okay. So the same thing with any event or race that you have, as long as you've done the work, have confidence that you're okay. You will be okay. When it all comes down to it, when you're out there alone or pacing someone, it doesn't matter what your Strava account says. It doesn't matter what your, the book that you read two months ago about training. It doesn't matter. What matters is you in that moment and your relationship to your thoughts. Yeah. And you said like tapping into that, what's deep inside. And that's, that's what's key. If you're not tapping into what's deep inside, that internal guidance is going to be, is going to be lost on you. And the thing is, is that when you tap into what's deep inside of you, it will 100% bring you right up to your fears. But, you know, as, as Yogananda's teacher, Yukteswar, told him, like, he, would, he told him when he started working with him, he told him these three stories. And one of the stories was about fear. And the moral of the story was, walk up to your fears and they will cease to, they will cease to trouble you. And so that's exactly, I think, the end result of, of, of this whole experience was that it wasn't just the fear of being torn apart by a mountain lion, like the fear of the dark. As a child, I was petrified of the dark, petrified of the dark. I used to wake up in a, and if my room was dark, I would be in a panic attack as a kid like a pan, like sweating. So I was able to get to the other side of these things that had been with me from a very early age, but I was ready for them now. And I think I said to you, like, if somebody asked me to do this 10 years ago, which actually they did when we were in Boulder, remember I was going to pace our friend Sean at Leadville. Of course I was going to do it, but I was petrified. And there was a big part of me that was praying that I wasn't going to have to do it. And he actually dropped at 50 and I never had to do it. So I would have shown up, but I would have shown up in fear and I would have used my will to get through it. This time I have spent years learning about why I'm here and how to live in that state of freedom and walk this earth without fear so that when I showed up, I was able to show up 100%. Because 10 years ago with our buddy, Sean, I was not showing up 100% at all. Awesome. Congratulations. Really, it's to Lisa because yeah, congratulations. the end of all this, Lisa. she finished. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, but also for you for facing your fears and getting out there and, and 
just standing rooted in your steadfastness and challenging who you are and what your thoughts and belief systems are to come out the other side as a stronger human being that you can help everyone that you interact with up level their lives. It's a chain, it's a chain effect. It's the ripple effect. So thank you for everything that you're doing on yourself. And we all have our, we all have our things, right? Whether you're free, you're afraid of heights. Um, you're afraid to ride a bike. You're afraid to swim in the ocean, whatever it is. Like I had two of the biggest things, the fear of being sleep deprived and the fear of being, you know, killed in the wilderness at night. I had both of those things show up. And when you, um, deepen that communion with that part of you, that, uh, that's unshakable, you're able to show up in an unshakable way. And I felt like I was able to show up in that way uh, for Lisa. So So all you listeners out there, find out what it is that's scaring you. I think think we already know. I think they already know. Fears and doubts and stand up to them today. Anything, any final? Are you going to be doing 100 anytime soon? I know you've got the 100K coming up, but what about 100 for you? So I have a, a knowing inside of me that absolutely, I'm going to do 100 miles. Like I'm going to do 100 miles. I don't know when that's going to be. When I called you yesterday and you were like, so? Like, what do you think? And I was like, I feel really neutral. I feel really neutral. Now, that said, as of this morning... Like you, I queued up a YouTube video. Yeah, dude, he queues up the Tahoe Rim video, and uh, which is so funny because I was on the plane with the guy who made that video, and then ran into him at two thirty in the morning on the trail, and then flew home with him last night, and like sat across from him. It's so funny. Like, so you queue up that video this morning, and then you know I get that feeling of like, oh my God, I just want to go back. I just, I'm going to put my name in the, the lottery and da, da da da. But the fact is, is that the lottery opens and. December. So we'll just see what that looks like. Oh, I will say that one of the things that, um, this race logistically is it's so easy. We stayed at the Marriott in Carson city, which is like a quarter mile to the road that you take over the pass Spooner Lake, which is the start and finish. We're 20 minutes away. And then diamond peak, which was the 50, Mark and the 80 Mark were 35 minutes away. The George Ruiz, who's the race director has every single I dotted and T crossed from the point where he doesn't want you crossing a busy road that goes around the lake. So they have shuttles from the parking lot to the race site, which it's like maybe a half a mile, you know, and every single thing that you could imagine this, this race director has covered this. It is the course is so well marked and the ease of flying into Reno. It was a half an hour drive to the hotel. And then we just used the car. The car was $150 for the weekend. Like it just, the logistics of this race are super, super easy. The flow of the race, the clarity from the race director, as far as like, where you could be as crew and support 
you know, as pacers. And if he didn't want you somewhere, basically the rule is if he, if it's reported that people are there, the runner gets disqualified. So, I mean, it's just so clear on every point. So logistically, like if I'm going to put it on paper, this race makes a lot of sense for us because it's super easy. So we'll just see, we'll just see what, how I feel when, when it opens. I've got a few things um, in my body that I want to get on top of. So I've had some lingering things, some plantar fascia on my left foot. So coming off of this weekend and seeing what it takes to do a hundred and f- really feeling that and um, moving into hundred K uh, I've got some things um, physically that I want to put in, you know, put into a higher level of, of healing. I could make it through, but I don't want to manage things in my body because I want to be doing this for a long time. So I'm interested in healing and getting to the other side of those. And then we'll see. So I think hundred percent, hundred miles is, that's what I feel inside that I'm going to do it. Uh, and when the time is right and the race is right, I'll know without, without a doubt. Great. Awesome. Okay. Thanks guys. Yeah. And thanks babe for letting me have these little adventures Always. that I, that I get to do. Um, BJ has always been really good at allowing me to, to fly. And, uh, that's just, I don't know how much allowing is done. (laughs) (laughs) What do you mean by that? You're just going to do it. (laughs) 